Gary Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. None of us were there, but when we read about or talk about the Civil War, we all see pictures in our heads. Where do those pictures come from? What are the sources of the visual images of the Civil War that remain with us today? Well, today we'll talk with an artist who has made a career of creating rich, detailed visual images of the Civil War and other military events. Join us for a conversation with Don Troiani on Civil War Talk Radio. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking from my office at East Carolina University, but not speaking on behalf of the university, which is perhaps not even aware that I'm here at this moment. The subject today is art of the Civil War, in particular that created by our guest Don Triani, who is a painter of Civil War and other historical subjects. Before we even start talking, though, I'd like to urge anyone listening to open another window in your browser and go to the following website, www.historicalartprints.com. Historical Art Prints is all one word. There you'll find some of the art of our guests today, because if we're going to talk about visual images, uh, that's a futile exercise if you can't actually see them. But there's a place where you'll be able to see a lot of what our guest has done. With that said, uh, let me welcome Don Triani. Don, how are you doing this morning? Hi. Fine. How are you? Good. Did I get the website correct there? Yeah. Yeah. we'd, We'd love to have people take a look at your work as we're talking about it today. Now, let me start by asking about your background. What, uh, how did you get started in, in the art world? Well, I mean, it, it started basically with stick figures in uh, kindergarten, you know, the usual uh, kid war pictures, and uh, I just kept doing them. And uh, I went to uh, art school, uh, went to the Pennsylvania Academy of Art in between 1967 and about 71, but they, they don't teach you much in art school anymore, so I, I'm basically self-taught. 
I'm curious, what, what do they do in art school? If they're uh, um, curious, I worry about not hurting your feelings, and uh, uh, usually criticism was sort of considered uh, destructive of your creativity. Ah. Uh, so actually, learning something might stifle your imagination. Well, we don't want to do that. Certainly, we don't want to don't want to injure anyone's self-esteem by suggesting they don't already know everything. All yeah, well, there was there was quite a bit of that. I mean, this was 1967, 68. So uh, uh, most of the teachers didn't even show up for class anyway. Uh, you were just left there with the model, and uh, I learned more. They had a very good museum at the at the school. You know, all the Thomas Aikens and Homer paintings and so forth, and uh, you could learn more just going up and looking at those. Interesting. So, so you, uh, so you got started uh, with an art school education, we'll say in quotes, and then went on to continue painting uh, on your own. Did you immediately find work uh, in the art field? Um, some. Uh, I started doing some work for a lot of work for the National Park Service, um, who always liked using me. In fact, they, they still do because, you know, basically they could just say do a, a soldier of the 34th Regiment of Foot or whatever it's going to be, and, and they could leave it to me. You know, they didn't have to do anything else. And um, uh, some work for American Heritage and things like that. You know, mostly illustration work. It sounds like it's all uh, history-oriented, though. Is this oh, yeah. Interest yeah. No, I, I decided, you know, a long time ago I would specialize in that because doing anything else for me was boring. D- was the Civil War a particular interest, or is it history generally that got you? Um, I st- no, well, in general, uh, uh, the Civil War... Um, followed a collecting interest because I liked uniforms. I was a very strong Revolutionary War collector, but you could never get any uniforms. But in the Civil War, you can you know, still readily get them. And uh, so I started moving into that direction. About the same time, I was doing some Western prints, and uh, we tried a Civil War one, and it did really well. So everything sort of fell together. It was about, about 1984. And that, uh, you know things fell together, you know, in that direction. That would be a good time to get uh, involved in Civil War study. That's just a few years before Ken Burns produced his television piece, and, and public interest really took off at that point. Yeah, yeah, it, it did, and uh, I mean that was that was a catalyst in the movie Gettysburg, and of course, you know, they they both elevated uh, Joshua Chamberlain from pretty much up obscurity, you know, into being a major figure with Lee and Jackson. That's true. I can recall in the uh, seventies, uh, no, one more decade, in the eighties, I can recall going to the Joshua Chamberlain Museum in Brunswick, Maine, which was a completely obscure, out-of-the-way location, but uh, suddenly now it's a major stop. It, it has uh, attracted a lot of attention. Uh, you could see it even in the autograph prices. I mean, you know, Chamberlain didn't bring too much more than any other Union colonel before that, a little bit more, but... Uh... And all of a sudden, you know, his autograph or and CDVs and so forth are worth thousands. Right. So people people who got into the ground floor of Chamberlain were were in the right place. Actually, I got a lot of his stuff. Uh, really, uh, I got a call from a, a family. Uh, this is, I guess, about 1990, and uh, they said we have uh, some colonels' things we'd like to sell. Or, and he was a general later, and I said, who? And they said Joshua Chamberlain. I thought it was one of my friends calling up, you know, <laughs> fool around. And it was actually descendants. They were not blood descendants, but they had inherited. And I got 150 war letters, his uh, gauntlets, his commissions, uh, uh, quite a bit of stuff. A lot of the letters are unpublished. Do you plan to do anything with these? 
Uh, well, I did. I, I sold them to the. Uh, I, I kept a few and the commissions and the gauntlets and shoulder straps for myself. But I'm, I'm not a paper collector, so I sold them to the uh, National Museum at Harrisburg, which is says says they're going to publish them, but I don't know if they will or not. Well, it's good good to know though. Then they're they're accessible to researchers. Maybe they'll be published one day. That's uh, oh yeah. Like eventually, I'm sure they will be. About a hundred were love letters to his wife before the war. Uh, ones that he certainly never thought anyone else would be reading. <laughs> and uh, uh, the war letters, there's, there's a good number of unpublished ones there, too. Well, that, I, I think that will be of high interest. You know, Thirty years ago, when scholars were collecting letters uh, of, of Civil War figures, they would routinely weed out the personal ones and just print the war ones. Mm-hmm. But the way the public's interest has, has evolved, I would su- imagine there would be a pretty... No, there were, there were some good ones in here. There was Pretty one good. where his wife was, uh, he was telling his wife uh, how to work the politicians at home to get him a promotion. Excellent. Uh, you know, things that you wouldn't associate with him, you know. Uh, uh, there were also versions, apparently, of some of the published ones that may have been the original versions. Uh, and then, you know, he made edited versions later, which are the ones that went into books and things. I believe there's some controversy. His famous account of the surrender at Appomattox uh, that, that is, has been printed many times in the last few years was challenged as to whether that was really quite that, was, that wasn't there. That was uh, the letters were like sixty two to about sixty four, and then they cut off. But I mean, there was interesting stuff. Like there, you know, up, up till Fredericksburg, he had a full beard, ah. and then he mentions you know getting it uh, the beard trimmed and having like a waxed mustache at that point. Um, I did a print on him based on his description in the letters of exactly how he looked at Fredericksburg, which, of course, isn't like the movie. No. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, even the 20th Maine wasn't, wasn't that heavily engaged in the battle. You know, they had to jazz it up for the movie. Yes, yes to make things more spectacular. Well, no, that, I can see if you have the letters of someone like Chamberlain, it would be tempting to, to then do a, a painting of his work. How in general do you come up with the subjects uh, of your your visual work? Um, it's it's a couple of different ways. Uh, first, the easiest way is if somebody commissions me to do it, and then uh, you know I'll read about it. And if it seems you know like a good subject, I'll do it. Uh, and the rest is just by reading. You know, usually before I go to sleep every night, I read out of different books, whatever's you know off the bookshelf for for an hour or so. And it makes me sleepy, and. Uh, you know, you just read something and it sounds like it'll make a good painting. And then you do further research, and sometimes it doesn't. You know, it, you know, you find out the, the sides didn't get that close together or it, it wasn't like the account you read. A, lo- a lot of things really fall apart under research. Um, tell me about your research. What what kind of things do you look at? Uh, well, you, you have to look at a lot of things. Uh almost most important because it is a picture and you're not writing about it or things like what color horse was Hancock's aide-de-camp riding. Uh, you know, that's an important thing because you've got to show it. And an author can just say, uh, well, he rode up. <laughs> he doesn't have to say what color horse. So I, I have different things to deal with. Now, where would you find that? that I, mean, I, I, I would, As a historian, I would know where to look for for an account of, of you know, say, Hancock and Howard uh, Gettysburg debating who's in command, but it has never occurred to me to think about what color horses they were on. Uh, well, uh, you read all the accounts and you hope it's mentioned there. Uh, sometimes you can go into their personal papers in the National Archives or other places and it'll be mentioned. 
you know, a lot of times you can read back if, if that individual wrote a memoir and he might mention, you know, a hundred pages before that his dapple gray or something like that. Or someone else may mention it. Uh, with the case of the Confederates, if you go into their personal archives, like I was doing, uh, uh, the one of Elijah White leading the, uh, uh, Confederate uh, Comanche Battalion at Brandy Station, and we went to his personal papers, and he mentioned, I guess, having a horse either killed at Brandy Station or around that time, and it was a, a dapple gray, and he was because he had to get a receipt for to get a new horse. So there you had the the, ever, the first-hand evidence. Well, I just collect it uh, every time I read a description anywhere of. Uh, an officer, you know, of any prominence or a staff officer of another general where it mentions a horse color or anything about his uniform. He had a straw hat or this or that. I keep huge files for like 35 years, and I just keep putting all this stuff in. Wonderful. A lot of times when you you pull the file, it's already there. You know, it it does occur to me as we're talking that uh, I was recently reading letters from a soldier in one of Custer's uh, in, in Custer's Michigan Brigade, uh, Cavalry Brigade, and he mentioned that Custer had the companies, or the regiments, I guess, uh, was it companies of the regiment, I don't recall, each company mounted on a different color horse, and oh. other officers thought that was an affectation. They didn't care for it, but it was it was Custer's style to color code his companies. Well, it'd be easier to see at a distance, you know. Uh, uh, you know, so why, why the buglers had... Uh, you know the the bars across the fronts of the jackets, and usually rode gray horses, is, is, so the officers could spot them. So it's not just vanity; it actually there's a military reason for that. Uh, yeah, it, it, it may well have been so Custer could, you know, identify each company at a distance. Interesting. So you so you have your own research files. Um, yeah, you're located in Connecticut, is that yeah. right? Yeah. So so you have a certain amount of uh, research material not not too far away, I imagine, in, in some other repositories. No, not really. Um, if, you know, the the key stuff I have up here is on uniforms, and then if what I don't have, I mean, you know, now I can just send out emails to other students of uniforms and see what they have and and put it all together. It occurs to me that the collection of Brown University in Providence uh, has, has a fair amount of uniform information. Uh, they're mostly in the earlier periods. Uh, I mean, they have a lot. Uh, where they came in real handy. Last time I think I used that source was uh, when I did the uh, Lee at Gettysburg, and there were foreign staff officers. And uh, Fitzgerald Ross, who was with Lee, an Austrian officer, had been in, the I think, the 6th Hussars. And so I need to recreate the Austrian six who's our uniform for the for the painting, which I did. But uh, Brown had a lot of good stuff on on that regiment. Uh, at uh, one of the other foreign officers at Gettysburg was, of course, uh, Colonel Fremantle. But as I recall, he was not wearing a uniform. No, no, he was in civilian clothes. I think he had what they called a Norfolk jacket. On, uh, which was a, a pleated jacket. There was a, a good photograph taken of him in uh, something, I can't remember what, where he described it as what he was uh, wearing during the campaign. And yet in the the Gettysburg movie, they, they put him in red. Yeah, you can't use movies for reference. No, no. They, movies they, are strictly uh, entertainment. I mean, even <laughs> Cold Mountain, which I was a technical advisor on, I mean, we, we, we really fixed it up a lot. It was Brian Pohanka and Mike Krauss and, and myself. Um, but it was more... Not what we got them to do is what we stopped them from doing. For example? Well, like the original scene at Petersburg, instead of having the Confederates 
living in the trenches. They were going to have them at a big chow wagon uh, in a big, you know, uh, camp of nice white tents, hmm. uh, all lined up for chow. And they had a picture of some kind of uh, oh, a sanitary commission coffee kitchen, you know, this big portable thing with chimneys and stuff, and that's what they were going to use. Uh, plus, they had a Confederate uh, flag mounted on the earthworks about every 20 feet. Hmm. It looked like a Renaissance fair. <laughs> so, you know, we got rid of a lot of that stuff, and we got them to do better stuff. But we, we couldn't fix everything, but we got about 80% of it fixed. Uh, well, that, that must have been some experience. Did you actually go overseas for the filming of that? No, no. Uh, Brian and uh, Mike Krause did, but uh, uh, fortunately I didn't have to go. Uh, I, I did most of it right out of the house. It was mostly reading the script and seeing what they would need for that scene and sending them the pictures of the battle flags and telling them, you know, how to make them and, uh, you know, all the core badges. Uh, a lot of what we did wound up on the cutting room floor. Uh, you, you didn't see, uh, I mean, there were, we, we spent a lot of time on federal cap insignias and core badges and all these Massachusetts flags, getting all the details right and the right spear finials and, and so forth. And eh, I mean, the movie came, where is it? <laughs> they cut half an hour out of the film. Uh, we went to see a preliminary version, and uh, they cut a, a good half hour out, and a lot of the half hour was the fighting uh, at the crater, and the hospital scene they cut out completely. Huh. So, so that would be, you know, hopefully that survives somewhere, might, might be shown. Oh, yeah, maybe there will be some director's cut DVD, you know, that comes out, and you'll, you'll pick it up there, because they cut out a lot. Well, we are going to cut out for just a moment here and take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment to talk more about Civil War art with our guest Don Troiani on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 